So, um, first of all, the first casualty that for me, um, one of the casualties, not the first, one of the casualties of the situation in Israel is that um, I don't have all the sources that I want you to have. I'm going to Israel tomorrow, and from the moment that I made the decision to go, uh, my life has become quite complicated because everybody has an idea of who I need to see when I get there. And I also have um, onion powder. Uh, my mother needs onion powder. Um, and, um, and somebody else needs body armor, 28 pounds, only the 28 pounds. I'm bringing some body armor for this one person. But it's like literally all the way over here, every single minute, another call with that. And could you, do you mind stopping an Ashdod on the way? <laughs> so it's, it's been a little bit scattered. So um, the topic, obviously, that we're going to talk about today is fairly topical. Uh, it's really, in a certain sense, the only topic. The fact is that uh, we've been in a kind of a holding pattern since the horrific attacks uh, two weeks ago, 16 days ago now, 15, 16 days ago, we've been in a holding pattern. Netanyahu um, promised, I hate that word, but he promised a, uh, a ground war to flush out every single one of these terrorists. And um, the whole country's been on hold. 360,000 Chayalim called up. And we're waiting to go in. The country's just paralyzed. And we're not going in. Nobody knows why. And um, uh, one of the possible reasons, nobody knows why. Everybody, every Jew is an expert in everything. We're all running the war ourselves. But uh, one possible reason is that there's the preoccupation with the hostages. Uh, and we, either we know something's about to happen or might happen, and we don't want to cause anything to blow up. If there is some deal about to be made, the uh, Hamas is very smart to release two hostages a couple of days ago to tantalizingly hold that out in front of everybody, delaying possibly the ground war uh, a little bit more. By the way, I have to tell you something that I, that, uh, that I noticed in yesterday's parsha related to this issue. Torah says, HaKadosh uh, Baruch says to, uh, to Moshe Rabbein, to, uh, to Noah, Ki liyamim od in another, yet another seven days, I'm going to uh, bring the model. This is after Noah has been given 120 years uh, of preparation. Ki liyamim od another seven days, I'm going to start the model. So Rashi says, what's that other seven days about? The so Rashi says, Mr. Shabbat died. And God didn't want to disturb his shiva by having the flood start before the shiva was over. So Shalach being a tzaddik, so he wanted to honor his shiva. So it occurred to me in a kind of an odd and almost a very, very uh, terribly tragic way. You know, people, thousands and thousands of people are sitting shiva in Israel. And even though the deaths occurred two weeks ago, 16 days ago, but the confirmation of the deaths for hundreds and hundreds of them uh, hasn't uh, come till now. There are families that just started sitting Shiva a couple of days ago, and some who won't be sitting Shiva for another day or two, at least, because they're, going, they're working their way through these terribly desecrated uh, bodies of the Kedoshim, uh, the, the people who died of Kiddush Hashem, they died because they're Jewish. And um, so it could be that HaKadosh Baruch manipulated the whole thing so that the state of Israel and, and the Jewish people as a whole can at least spend their time focusing 
on the morning for the disaster for the, for the situation before we move forward and get preoccupied with uh, the sun with what happens with the groundwork. May I shall protect every single one of us. Anyway, so that's so this topic is really yeah, obviously very relevant. What I'm going to go through is the contours of the discussion in the halacha. We're not going to be able to, as a matter of fact, what I hope you will conclude is that it is uh, not clear. It is very much not clear what to do in a hostage situation. There are many, many options, and there are many halakhically grounded approaches. And as a matter of fact, in modern day Israel, there have been, when Shalit was, was freed um, several years ago, when was he freed? I think in 2014, I'm not sure anymore. But when Shalit was freed, he had been captive for five years. In the state of Israel, in order to obtain his release, they finally looked at a deal and they freed 1,003, I think it was 1,003 uh, murderers uh, in exchange for Shalit. Shalit comes home, and there was a tremendous amount of controversy if they were allowed halakhically, they probably should have made that deal. By the way, just to add to the drama of the discussion, it's not been pointed out. But one of the murderers who was released in exchange for Shalit commanded the entire operation of October 7th. One of the people who was led out of jail by Israel to get Shalit was the guy who directed the entire operation of October 7th. So, so it just shows you the stakes are very high in terms of what kind of ransom you pay. And as we're going to see, there are a lot of about what kind of ransom you pay. Before we do that, everybody's familiar with this book, I'm sure. The Prime Minister's, if you're not, get it. It's absolutely one of these books that once you start it, you can't put it down. Um, it's uh, Yehuda Avner's uh, first-hand account of how he served the various Prime Ministers of Israel. And he does a great job because he does not insert himself in his opinions. He's literally the best, next best thing to having a tape recorder go on. He just records what, what went on and just fascinating stuff. Um, all the way from, uh, I think he starts with Envy Eshkel and he goes all the way through um, to <coughs> until recent times. By the way, I should go for the breakfast. I came here starving. On the way over here, I complained to my wife that I am hungry. She said, I have something waiting for you. I come over here and I see great food. Thank you. <coughs> okay. I want to read you just a um, couple of things. Uh, just to set the stage here for the for the uh, kinds of intensity that we're dealing with, <clears throat> the ba way back, I forget what year it was, in the early 1970s, um, <coughs> I think it was 73. <coughs> there was um, when Jews were being released from the Soviet Union, and uh, they were they went through a, a, a place in Austria, I think it was called Chennai, and uh, there was a tra it was near Vienna. And uh, a train, I'm going to read you from this, a train carrying Jews from communist Russia to Israel via Vienna had been hijacked on the 29th of September by two Arab terrorists at a railway crossing on the Austrian frontier. Seven Jews were taken hostage, among them a 73-year-old man, an ailing woman, and a three-year-old child. The terrorists issued, by, by the way, anybody who's familiar with what Arab terrorists have done to Israelis over the last 30, 40 years, is not at all shocked by what went on, what Hamas did on October 7th. Only naive, stupid, willingly ignorant people who want to look the other way are shocked that the terrorists did what they did 
not only in murdering the people, but in mutilating their bodies. This is nothing new. And it's not just Hamas. And I'm not making a political statement. We have to be willing to deal with reality if we're going to deal with this war at all. Um, here they are holding a 73-year-old man and a sick woman and a three-year-old child as hostage. And, they, and here it goes. The terrorists issued an ultimatum that unless the Austrian government instantly closed down Chanel, the Jewish agency's transit facility near Vienna, where emigres were processed before being flown onto Israel, not only would the hostages be killed, but Austria itself would become the target of violent retaliation. All right, so the Austrian cabinet hastily met and led by Chancellor Bruno Kreisky, capitulated. Kreisky announced that Chanel would be closed and the terrorists were hustled to the airport for safe passage to Libya. The entire Arab world could hardly contain its glee and a fuming Golda Meir instructed her aides to arrange a flight to Vienna after her meeting in Strasbourg where she attend, intended to confront Chancellor Kreisky, a fellow socialist and a fellow Jew. To the Council of Europe, she said, since the Arab terrorists have failed in their ghastly efforts to wreak havoc in Israel, they've increasingly taken their atrocities against Israeli and Jewish targets into Europe, aided and abetted by Arab governments. This remark caused a fidgety buzz to drone around the chamber, and it seemed to deepen when she spoke in particular and with great bitterness about the 11 Israeli athletes kidnapped and murdered at the Munich Olympics the previous summer, that was in 72, an outrage compounded by the German government's subsequent release of the captured killers in return for the freeing of a hijacked Lufthansa plane and its passengers. Again, I, forgive me for inserting my own opinions here, but part of the problem that the civilized world has is that they have tolerated this kind of a thing. They've been willing to look the other way. They do not have moral clarity. And all of a sudden, when Jews get massacred, they wake up and they go, oh, this is horrible. It pogrom against the Jews. We're so sorry. But they are willing to tolerate this kind of a thing and look the other way if it doesn't get too bloody. If it gets too bloody, then all of a sudden they're horrified. But if it's not bloody, the uh, nations of the world are quite willing to look the other way. Oh, so anyway, this um, um, Oh, yes, I fully understand your feelings, said Golda cynically, arms folded as tight as a drawbridge. I fully understand the feelings of a European prime minister saying, for God's sake, leave us out of this. Fight your own wars on your own turf. What do your enmities have to do with us? Leave us be. And I could even understand this in a voice that was grimmer than ever, why some governments might even decide that the only way to rid themselves of this insidious threat is to declare their countries out of bounds, if not to Jews generally, then certainly to Israeli Jews or Jews en route to Israel. It seems to me this is the moral choice which every European government has to make these days. And then, in a voice hardened ruthlessly, she thundered, European governments have no alternative but to decide what they're going to do. To each one that upholds the rule of law, I suggest there is but only one answer. No deals with terrorists. No truck with terrorism. Any government which strikes a deal with these killers does so at its own peril. What happened in Vienna is that a democratic government, a European government, came to an agreement with terrorists. In so doing, it has brought shame upon itself. In so doing, it has breached a basic principle of the rule of law the basic principle of the freedom of the movements of peoples, or should I just say the basic freedom of the movement of Jews fleeing Russia. Oh, what a victory for terrorism this is. Anyway, she, she went on. So that was, that's one reaction and how to deal with terrorists, which is you cannot capitulate. 
I just want to share one other thing from this book. It's just a, there's so much in here, but um, the Entebbe raid, which we all know as almost completely successful, that's where uh, Benyamin where, uh, Netanyahu uh, meets his death. He was the only one who died. Not Benyamin, Yonatan uh, Netanyahu, excuse me, Benyamin Netanyahu's brother. But the, at the um, at the uh, uh, at the Entebbe raid in uh, July. 1976, uh, when originally two planes had been hijacked and taken to uh, Uganda. Anyway, it was, uh, and they were holding them hostage. Um, just wanted to... Yeah, on uh, Wednesday, June 30th, Rabin opened the next ministerial committee meeting with this chilling news. This is Prime Minister Rabin. The terrorists have carried out a selection. They've separated the Jews from the non-Jews. There are 98 Jews. The non-Jews have been released. The Jewish hostages are threatened with execution. There's now absolutely no doubt that Idi Amin is eager to ingratiate himself with the Arabs and is fully collaborating with the terrorists. The ultimatum expires in less than 24 hours. So again, I ask the chief of staff, Mata, that's Mata Gurt, do you have a military plan? We're looking at three possible options, answered the general. One is to launch a seaborne attack on the airport from Lake Victoria. The second is to induce the hijackers to transact an exchange here in Israel and then jump them. And the third is to drop parachutists over Entebbe. There was a silent pause. Are any of these plans operational, asked the Prime Minister, his face cold, hard pinched. Can you recommend any one of them to the government? No. In that case, said Rabin with alacrity, since the terrorist ultimatum is scheduled to run out at 2 p.m. tomorrow, I intend to propose to the full cabinet that we negotiate with the hijackers for the release of the hostages. We will negotiate through the French. If we're unable to rescue them by force, we have no moral right to abandon them. We must exchange them for terrorists held here in our jails in Israel. Our negotiations will be in earnest, not a tactical ruse to gain time, and we'll keep our side of any deal we strike. I object, countered Perez. I'm sure you do, muttered Rabin between his teeth, but this time Perez was not to be silenced. We have never agreed in the past to free prisoners who have murdered innocent civilians, he thundered. If we give in to the hijackers' demands and release terrorists, everyone will understand us, but no one will respect us. If, on the other hand, we conduct a military operation to free the hostages, it's possible that no one will understand us, but everyone will respect us, depending, of course, this in a whisper, on the outcome of the operation. Rabin, glowering, decanted his unrestrained rage. For God's sake, Shimon, our problem at this moment is not more of your rhetor heroic rhetoric. If you have a better proposal, let's hear it. What do you suggest? You know as well as I do, the relatives of the hostages are stalking us day and night. They're beside themselves with fear, clamoring for us to make an exchange, and for good reason. What do they say? They say that Israel freed terrorists after Yom Kippur War in exchange for the bodies of dead soldiers. So how can we refuse to free terrorists in exchange for living people, our own people, their loved ones, when their lives are in imminent danger? All right, so this kind of just captures the kinds of pressures and the kind of drama that you have. And we're going to see this really in the halacha. Um, so, yeah, sure. Nicole um, Yammer gave a class about this, and he mentioned that Robin actually called the Rabbi Yosef asking. Mm -hmm. well, there's a long chew with it, right? right? He wrote a 30 page. But he doesn't mention it in the Prime Minister, that's all I'm saying. Yeah. He, doesn't yeah. Mention yeah. That, he doesn't mention that quote. Yeah. He wasn't there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, 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 he writes whatever he saw. Yeah, it's true. It's, it's like the Hummus, you know. Drummond will be a lot more than when he's in 175 years in
All right, so um, let, let's, the, uh, I think the paper clip is on the top left, so to speak, if you want to know what the front page of this is. Um, there's a Mishnah in Gittin. Gittin is a, is a tractate in, in the uh, in Talmud Bavli that deals with, uh, primarily with divorce, but it deals with many things. And this particular parak uh, introduced the concept of tikkun olam, which is one of the most perverted uh, Hebrew terms, most distorted, misunderstood Hebrew terms in, the, in, the, in all of Judaism. Tikkun Olam has become its own religion nowadays, but actually uh, for people who are familiar with uh, our Masorah, Tikkun Olam means that the rabbis very often introduced various legislative uh, innovations in order to uh, rectify some possible mistakes that would come out from uh, various attitudes uh, that people have, and they're, they're wide-ranging. So the Mishnah list is in the middle of listing many things, and says the Mishnah, You cannot redeem captives for more than their market price. How do they translate it here? Their actual monetary value. Now, what is monetary value of a hostage? Right. So that's itself is going to be a question. We're not going to get into great detail about that, but I'll just tell you that the authorities uh, range in their opinions from you go to the slave market and find out what the slave market would, would, get, would fetch for a captive of this age or this uh, gender, and that's the price above which you're not allowed to go. Others would say, no, that's not, uh, there is no slave market nowadays. Matter of fact, in uh, even earlier centuries, some of the postkins said, well, there actually is in Yishmael, in, the, uh, in some of the Arab countries, there still is a slave market, and we, therefore we could still establish the price there. But either, whatever the going rate is, now, when they're talking about exchanging captives, um, so would it be one for one? Right? The shalit, for example, the shalit exchange established that one Israeli uh, is worth 1,003 terrorists. So maybe the, maybe, uh, the going rate is, is something else. But either, whatever it is, the Mishnah says you can't give more than, it's re- than the regular price. We'll read one more line here. We don't cause the captives to escape. Very interesting that uh, in a classic captive situation, we don't say, oh, there's 10 captives. I got three of them I can peel off and get out of there. You don't do that because what you're doing is you're endangering the lives of the remaining seven because uh, the captors will uh, take it out on the ones who are still there. Okay, now let's go straight to the Gemara. This is not, uh, I don't like this because this is not the way the, the, the uh, page of Gemara appears and it's very hard to, to relate to it when it's just uh, an abstract on a Xerox page, but it'll have to do for us today. You see the second line in Hebrew that says the word Gemara at the very last word on the line? Or in English, you see that bold Gemara? The Gemara immediately jumps in and asks the following question. They asked a question in the yeshiva. When they learned this mission, they asked a question. This um, uh, establishment, this, um, this rabbinic legislation, in order to fix things, what are they fixing? Mishum Is it because of pressure on the community, financial pressure on the community? In other words, is the idea that we, we want to make sure to limit the price of freeing captives. We want our enemies to know we're not going to pay above a certain amount because we want to make sure to reduce the pressure on the community because if uh, if we keep if we pay exorbitant prices for redemption of captives, we're going to have a tremendous we're going to have a kind of constant charity campaign every two days. We're going to have another 
uh, charity campaign because somebody captured a Jew in order to get uh, an exorbitant price. And therefore, the rabbis are trying to avoid that, and therefore they said, you're not allowed to pay more than Kadeh Demeim, more than their value. Odilma, or maybe, Mishum Maybe the whole point is that we don't want to um, induce, how do they say it in English here? Uh, perhaps it's because the result will be they will not seize and bring it. Yeah, we don't want to induce, we don't want to incentivize uh, the, um, the hostage takers to take more because if they successfully get a great price from us, they're going to say, hey, there's a good business. Uh, as I heard somebody say, I don't have to go into uh, old age homes, I can go into terrorism. It's much more profitable. Okay, so, uh, so which is it? What is the pur- <laughs> what's, what's the purpose of this tikkun olam, what are we trying to avoid? And that will make a big difference because if it's a question of pressure on the community, so if we can avoid pressure on the community, as in, let's say, a wealthy captive whose estate is so large that he can personally take care of it. So then, okay, so it's not dukkha de tzibura. But if it's a question of incentivizing um, the captors, so it doesn't matter who pays the money, the fact is that it incentivizes the captors to go and get more. So which one is it? So the Gemara says, Tashma, come and listen to this b'risa. Come and listen to what happened. And in this case, it's not a b'risa. To Levi Bardarga, Parkila Barte, but placer Alfa Dinrizov. Levi Bardarga redeemed his daughter for 13,000 uh, gold uh, dinars. Okay, so there you see that why he was a wealthy guy. So he, came, he went into his bank account and he didn't ask the Tzibor, he didn't ask the community to help. And he took care of it himself, and he paid an exorbitant price. Everybody knows that she wasn't worth, on the slave market, she's not worth 13,000 dinar. So, therefore, we have a proof that, indeed, it has to do with duchet et tzibura. So, Abayah said, in response to the people who were trying to prove from this precedent that, indeed, that's the side of this question that we're coming down on, Uman leimalon dibritzan chachamim who says that Darga, Levi Bardaga actually consulted with the sages and the rabbi said, good idea, go ahead, use your own money, it's no problem. Maybe, maybe he did it against the will of the sages. Maybe really they would have said, don't do it. And what he's really saying is when it comes to freeing captives, you can't control a family member. A family member might just do things spontaneously because it's an emotional issue. I mean, if you have the money and God forbid, your ch- daughter is captive, so I, I'll take care of it. Don't bother me about future captives, about incentivizing. I've got my daughter here. So therefore, uh, you can't prove anything there. And that's the end of the Gemara. The next Gemara after this does not deal with this question, which means the Gemara seems to leave this, quest, this two sides of the question open, unresolved. So it's very interesting. Immediately when, you, when a Gemara student sees a Gemara like this, and the Gemara tries to prove something, and it knocks off the proof. So that alone becomes a nice question. Does the, the fact that the Gemara deflected the proof, does that mean the weight of the Gemara is indeed that that proof shouldn't be used? Because the Gemara has a sense that the other alternative is acceptable, and therefore we can't prove anything over here. Or, as the Gemara just simply saying, we just don't know. That, so that, that, case, of, that case of Levi Bardago doesn't mean anything. And um, uh, we have no idea. We still have a Shiloh with no answer. That's, that's a, there, there's, there's a, there very often a machlokas in the Rishonim how to understand an unresolved question like this. And then you go and you look in the Rishonim, the Rift, for example. Well, I don't want to get into that now. We'll, we'll, get, we'll move to that. All right, so now, one of the ways that halacha develops 
is that uh, you force distinctions, which means you compare one case to another, seems to be a contradiction, and then you come up with a distinction so that case A and case B are not the same, and if they're not the same, the difference will make a very, uh, may a very important nuance in the halacha. So first the Gemara has, let's look at the Gemara, uh, the, the Gemara that appears in the, in the getting a couple of light after this Mishnah. I'll read the English because I see we're, we're going to run a little bit late here. Taking a lot longer than I thought. Look at the English on 58a. The sages taught, uh, related to the fate of Jewish children, there was an incident involving Rabbi, Yochanan ben Chana, Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania, who once went to the great city of Rome, where they said to him, there's a child in prison with beautiful eyes and an attractive appearance, and his curly hair is arranged in locks. So, okay, great, there's a Jewish child in, in, in prison. Rabbi Yeshua went and stood by the entrance to the prison. He said, as if speaking to himself, who gave Yaakov for a spoil in Israel to the robbers? The Pesach is, Mi nasen l'meshisa Yaakov Yisrael him. Okay, it's a Pesach in Yeshaya. So he knew that if it was a Jewish child, the Jewish child would be able to respond. The child answered by reciting the continuation of the verse, and that is, Halo Hashem zu chatanilo, v'lo avu bedrachav haloch, v'lo shama v'saraso. Did not Hashem, did not the Lord, he against whom we have sinned, and in whose ways we would not walk, neither were they beaten to his law, so this was a cue that indeed this is a Jewish child. Rabbi Yeshua said, I am, this is reminiscent, by the way, of what went on after World War II when Jews, uh, Jewish children who were taken into convents uh, needed to be identified. And the convents claimed, sometimes they meant it and sometimes they were lying, that I don't know who's Jewish and who's not Jewish. I can't tell you. I've got all kinds of orphans here. So some of the rabbis who were trying to find these Jews would go to the convents and they would say, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokein, Hashem Echad. And the Jewish kids from their earliest years would remember, Baruch Shem Kabod Machusel, whatever. They would remind, they would, and that's how they would be able to find some Jewish kids. Anyway, so here this guy, Rabbi Shubhan Hananya, recited this Pasuk. The kid responds and, and said, Rabbi Shua said, I'm certain that if given the opportunity, this child will issue halachic rulings in Israel, as he is already exceedingly wise. Because evidently for that age, he shouldn't have known that person. He said, I take an oath by the temple service, that's, that's the expression in Hebrew, ha'avoda, that I will not move from here until I ransom him for whatever sum of money they set for him. And now this Rabbi Shubat Hanani knows all Mishnayas by heart. So he knows that you're not allowed to ransom more than the price of the, uh, the going rate. And yet he says, I'm going to pay any amount of money, right? Um, they said he did not move from there until he ransomed him for a great sum of money, and not even a few days had passed when the child then issued halachic rulings in Israel. And who was the child? Rabbi Shmuel ben Elisha. So Rabbi Shmuel had a sense that this guy was going to grow up to be a tremendous Marah Israel, a tremendous giant of halacha, and he's going to be a leader in Israel, and therefore he redeemed him for a great sum of money. Okay. So that already raises your interest, right? Wait a minute, what happened to the Mishnah? You're not allowed to pay more than a certain amount. Why did he say, he seemed to volunteer, I'll pay anything to get this kid out. Special kid, I'll pay anything. So, yeah. How would the Gemara bring this down? Right, good question, right. Which means the Gemara seems, good question. And Tosas is kind of to deal with it. Another way of restating your objection is, the Gemara evidently knows something that we don't know, and therefore the Gemara doesn't think it's a problem. But what is that? What's something missing here? Right. So look, let's look at uh, two Tosfos in. First of all, the, the Tosfos on the, the original Mishnah. 
uh, on the original Gemara, where the Gemara said there are two possible interpretations of what we're trying to accomplish. Either to avoid pressure on the communal funds, or B, we're afraid to incentivize um, hostage takers by paying them too much, we're going to make it a good business and they're going to take more hostages. So on that second side, uh, Tosus here, I don't have a translation, I don't think of the first one. Yeah, so you'll have to bear with me. I'll read it slowly and I'll translate. It says Tosus, I got a problem. There's a Gemara in another tractate. It says, Nishbis um, uh, if a woman was captured and they're asking up to 10 times her price, it says that the first time they do this, you pay the redemption money, 10 times the price. So Tosa says, I don't get it. Here we just said that we're, we're putting a limit on them because we don't want to incentivize them. So what about over there? How come over there we say that at least the first time the husband is supposed to do this? So he says, answer number one, shiny ishto, one's wife is different, um, because a wife is literally like you. Nobody ever said that you can't redeem yourself, and a wife is like yourself, even more than a daughter is like yourself, right? on a person, the tikkun olam never applied to a person himself. The tikkun olam is we, others, who are trying to redeem a captive, we don't pay more than the value of the person. But nobody said that a person himself can't redeem himself for whatever he wants. He's a, he can take care of himself. The taikana was not there. So therefore, that's answer number one. Now all of a sudden we have a nuance. But didn't he say that's the difference that a wealthy man is between the two that a wealthy man... For his daughter. For his daughter. A wealthy man for his daughter. For himself, he goes, that, that, that's what Tosa seems to be implying. That's what Tosa says. A wife is like himself. A daughter is another story. A daughter is not like a wife. But if you redeem yourself for a certain amount of money, that means you're again incentivized. Okay, okay, let's leave it. You're right. You're, you're, you're correct. So it's, it seems to be, you're right, it seems to be that if you can redeem yourself, it seems that uh, we're not worried about the incentivizing thing. It seems to be we're leaning on the issue of, uh, on the other side, which is um, the Tzibur. Good point. Okay. And Tosa says, what's that? His value might be different since he was, he wrote law. Very good. So we'll get to that. Good point. So now, Tosa continues on the third line in Hebrew here. Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania, the Parkilahotina ben Maman Harbe, ben Izakin. What about that other case, Tosa says? We, 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 and, and, and Tosa says, what are you talking about? Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania paid a ton of money for this young child, right? He said, well, how could he do that? Tosa says, Answer number one, because he was exceptional. He was exceptional in Chachma, and therefore you were allowed to pay more. Oh, now we have a new thing here. As a result of this question, we now have a new category called, if the hostage is exceptionally wise, and the Rehushuv and was able to determine that this guy's going to grow up to be a Morahora, be Yisrael, he's going to be some kind of unusual leader of the whole Jewish people. Oh, for that, all of a sudden, we could pay more money, which, of course, raises the question why wouldn't it incentivize them for other great sages, right? So then they'll, they'll pick out, they'll that's pick what out. That's what the Maram What's that? That's right, Maram very good. You're getting. Higher than a oh than an adult? You mean because he's more 
But I mean, if you're talking about vulnerability, that's one thing. But we're saying because he's great, because he's going to be great. We're saying that we, the, the Tosas are saying he paid extra money because he was going to be great. Not because, yeah, not because he's a Muflik B'chachma. The second thing is, Inami, or Tosas says another answer. Now, before Tosas gives the answer, the second Tosas gives another answer, that means that if you, whatever I'm about to say, if that's the answer, then the first answer is not the answer. The reason I say that is because the first answer seems to be siding with the idea that you can redeem yourself for any amount, which means that we're not worried about incentivizing, right? So now, Inami, or another answer, when it comes at a time of the destruction of the base of Mikdash, which means the enemies of Israel are all over the place doing all kinds of terrible things, there we don't worry about incentivizing because it's already a war. All hell is broken loose. Now this has major ramifications because now all of a sudden, don't Rabbi Feldman, don't stand here talking about hostage taking in the context of the state of Israel. They're going crazy. They've got, they've got terrorists all over the place. You, can't, you're, you don't have to worry about incentivizing. They're out to kill. They're going to do anything they can. You're going to pay a lot of money, and if you don't pay a lot of money, they're still going to take hostages. And if you pay a lot of money, they're still going to take hostages. Therefore, it's a totally different thing. What we're, Tosis, we're only talking, the Gemara's question is only a question where we're at peacetime, where generally it's not a normal thing, where we don't have people, marauders, running around constantly <clears throat> grabbing hostages. We don't want to turn it into a lucrative business. That's where the Gemara has this question. But in a case like this, in the Churban Abayas, or we could say at a time of war, uh, incentivizing is an issue. Yes? Is it possible to extend that term, Churban Abayas, to any time after the destruction of the temple? I think, I think, I, 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 first, good question. I, I think, I don't know, but I think that it means any time when basically all hell is broken loose. You know. Can't be for Asa. Can't be for Asa. Churban Abayas, because the mission was written after Yes, right, right, and uh, and the case, and by the way, the case that he was talking about, case was actually the case he was talking about was closer to the Churban Abayis. But Tosis seems to me, and that's how the Achronim understand it, that there was a time when, like I say, all hell had broken loose. There was all kinds of things going on. Did you want to say something? Like just to your point, like Yusuf Israel was over ninety-seven thousand Jewish captives. It wasn't like they were going to capture more captives. Yeah, yeah. So, all right. So that's. So, okay, so that's the first Tosis. The Tosis gives us two different understandings. Why was this guy, this kid redeemed? Why was he redeemed? Because of Schorben Abayas, okay? Which means in normal times we wouldn't do it. The first answer is no, in normal times we would do it because he was exceptional. So there are two different, um, um, two different categories that Tosis has introduced over here. Muflag B'chachma, exceptional in wisdom, or a different one, it has to do with the era, what's going on around you, what's the environment. The next tosis, the next one is translated. Okay, so we said that, um, uh, says tosis, ki ika sakanas nefashis podich fun yosher When it's a question of life or death, when it's a question of life or death, there we do redeem people for more than their value. Meaning the mission is not talking about life or death. The mission that says we only go more than the, uh, than, the, uh, than the price of a hostage, that's talking where they're holding for money, not when the hostages might be killed. The Gemara there says that that's a, that's a, that's a life and death issue. Certainly over here, in a case of Sakonis Nefashas, there you can pay um, 
you can pay as much as you want. Inami, or Tosa says, Okay, so here, Tosa here agrees with the answer that he gave a couple of pages uh, earlier, that it was an exceptional case of Muflag Machachma. But again, I'm trying to show you that the nuances that, that are introduced in order to distinguish between one case or another have major halachic implications for, for other cases. Now, I want to show you, um, I had a karat puncher, and I don't have a translation of the Rambam. I had it, actually, but it didn't get printed out. So my computer rebelled and would not print the English page. It only likes Hebrew. I don't get it. So uh, the, if you see this, I'm just showing you. Those of you who can follow, fine. Otherwise, I'll try to translate. It's the Rambam in the eighth chapter of, Mat, of, of Matnas Aniyam, the eighth chapter of Gifts to the Poor. So here the Rambam says in Allah Yud, uh, yeah. Believe it or not, redeeming captives comes before supporting poor people or clothing them. You have no greater mitzvah than redeeming captives. Because captives are included in, star- in starving people, thirsty people, naked people, and they're in uh, danger of their lives. And we understand that today, like, what we're watching is just unbelievable. Anybody who turns his eyes from redeeming a captive, Hareza over Al, he's violating the following. Do not harden your heart, and do not hold back your hand. So he's violating that prohibition, which is you're not allowed to turn away from somebody in trouble. And do not stand idly by over your brother's blood. And also he's violating your Do not allow him to be afflicted uh, in front of you. He's also nullified a positive commandment, which is the Torah says, when somebody's in need, open up your in need, open up your hand. And And he's also nullifying, not performing the proper mitzvah of that your brother shall live with you, which means you have to give him life. You have to allow him to live. And do to him what you would do for yourself. Um, and another puzzle is not a Torah mitzvah, but um, but save people from death. Many other things like that. It's a very unusual thing for the Rambam to open up this way and then to repeat it. He's obviously coming to tell you something more than just, I feel strongly about this mitzvah. And when he puts in a phrase like that, I don't know what the answer is, but it's not casual. The Rambam doesn't get carried away in his halacha book and use an extra letter, much less an extra word or an extra phrase. He just said that it's a great mitzvah, so he doesn't need to say this again. He's coming to do something, but that's not the point here. Moving on to 12, skip number 11, Yud Aleph, skip, you go to Yud Beis, which is four lines up from the bend, if you're following in the Hebrew text. Ein podinus ha-shvuim He's quoting the Mishnah. You don't redeem captives for more than they're worth. Now, Ramam says what it is, which is interesting. He's now going to come down hard on one side. So that enemies will not chase after them to capture, capture them. Meaning, we don't want to incentivize our enemies to take hostages. And then he goes and says the other part of the Mishnah, we don't help Shavuyim escape. 
Ramah says a little bit different. Ramah says that we don't cause them to escape because if, if the enemy knows that we're going to have these special commando units coming in to save them, they're going to increase security on the captives so much that it'll just be a, ter- a terrible experience to be in captivity. They might put them in tunnels or something like that. Right, so the point is, again, the Rambam doesn't seem to be talking about wartime because there we've already got a, a, a big issue. But the Rambam, in the beginning of Halacha 12, came down hard on the side of incentive. The issue is we don't want to incentivize our enemies. Now, I want to show you what happened in the Shulchan Aruch. The Shulchan Aruch confuses us a little bit. The Shulchan Aruch of Yosef Karo, it's the back page, so to speak. The staple will now be on your top right. Um, and the, the, uh, the text in the middle is the Shulchan Aruch itself, and the Rashi script that uh, surrounds the text is uh, the Shach uh, and the Taz. And we're going to look just at the Shulchan Aruch itself, because the Shulchan Aruch gets a little bit confusing. Now, generally speaking, Rabbi Yosef Karo, whenever possible, followed the Rambam, and not only whenever did he follow him, he would even use his wording whenever possible. When he deviates from his wording, it's noticeable, and you wonder why. Ain said, look at, cha, at, uh, at the Halacha 4. That's um, in the uh, bold text, about three lines from the bottom of the bold text. Ain podin hashriyam yosem Okay, he's quoting the Mishnah, and he's paskening that we follow that Halacha. Why? So that the enemies will not... Uh, um, uh, go to extra lengths in order to capture them. Okay, this is the he's coming down on that side. It's very interesting. Where does he get that from exactly? Right? How does he know to come down on that side when the Gemara itself wasn't sure what to do? Right? He's following, following the Ramam, exactly. Yeah. Right. And how, exactly. It has the Ramam though. That's really the question is how does the Ramam know? Avul Adam Avo. Now here comes the Shulchan Aruch with some exceptions. But a person could redeem himself for as much as he wants. Now, why not? Why wouldn't that incentivize uh, the enemies? So you could say because they don't know who's got the means to do that. They're, it doesn't incentivize them because they may not know uh, which Jew to capture unless he, uh, they look at the. Uh, um, the donor board of the show, and that would be another story. What's that? There's also a plus of an eel about that a person that it said about the Sutton wanting to want to adopt an eel is such a great person, and the Sutton say, but if we take away everything, so the Hashem says, take away everything, kill his children, his family, and then and then what's it called? And then, then he said, but let me touch it. But before that, the Sutton says, but a person will give. כשכולכם,איש,כשכולכם,כשכולכם,כשכולכם,כשכולכם,כשכולכם,כשכולכם,כשכולכם,כשכולכם,כשכולכם,כשכולכם,כשכולכם,כשכולכם,כשכולכם
Ve'efshar she'yihya adam gadol. He's a very sharp student, and he might one day become an adam gadol. So now all of a sudden, the, the Shulchan Aruch is telling you that Gemara with Rabbi Shua ben Hanania, that wasn't a Tamar Chacham yet. That was a kid who he said, I'm sure he will be. So now I, Shulchan Aruch, I'm going to take from that Gemara that you don't have to have a guy in front of you who's a great guy like the Marami Rutenberg, who's already known to be a Tamar Chacham in order to pay an exorbitant price. No, even somebody that you think will be, you also are allowed to pay an exorbitant price. And how do I know a Tamar Chacham himself? Because if you're allowed to predict that somebody who will become a Tamachacham, you're allowed to pay extra money for, certainly a guy who already is there, you're allowed to. So um, he's really following the lead of Tosus, who introduced that distinction as the reason why Rabbi Shulban Hanana paid that price. But here you see a little bit, you, you see there's a little bit of fuzziness here because while there is, um, while there is a concern about incentivizing captors, uh, at the same time, we have so many we have exceptions. A guy can pay his own amount of money as much as he wants, and we can do this for a tamar chacham. And which means, what would the what would the shulchan aruch say to the famous case? We I've seen we, you've mentioned the Marami Rutenberg. What would the shulchan aruch say to the Marami Rutenberg who was held uh, hostage? Not hostage. He was in jailed. Uh, he was put in jail uh, for ransom, and the Marami Rutenberg insisted that nobody pay for him. And as a matter of fact, I believe he does die in jail. He spends several years there. There's a tremendous amount of controversy about his decision, about his psaq. He paskin lahalacha. It wasn't just like, I'm going to be a hero. He said, you shouldn't do it. So um, I want to quote you the Yamshel Shlomo. I forgot what, what, what the Yamshel Shlomo's real name is. The Yamshel, what's that? Marshal. Yeah, Marshal, which is an abbreviation. But I'm just saying, what's... Shlomo Luria. Shlomo Luria. Thank you, of course. Shlomo Luria. Thank you. So here, here's what the, Mar- the Shlomo Yolomir says about the Marami Rutenberg. Shamati al Marami Rutenberg. I heard about him. Shahiyotafus b'migdol aigzem. He was in the tower. He was a uh, captive. Vasar tava men sachadol. And the prince demanded a huge amount. And they wanted to redeem him. And he didn't allow it because he said, look at the Mishnah. Ain put in ashwing yosim Says the Yamshel Shlomo, the Shlomo Yuluria, the Tamani, I don't get it. Since he was an exceptional Taman Chacham, and there was nobody in his generation in Torah or Chasidus, and in, in Torah or piety, and um, um, uh, and, there, and, and therefore you're and therefore you're allowed to redeem him for all the money in the world. And if, because of his humility, he didn't want to say about himself that he was an exceptional Tamil Chacham, nevertheless, he should have been worried about the fact that Bittu Torah, he himself is not going to be learning. He doesn't have, uh, like he writes about himself, he was sitting in a dark cell without any books, without any sources, believed Torah without Torah, without light, and he was wailing, he didn't have any of the uh, any other sources for him to buy. This is a, a huge, we're talking about, you know, Marami Rutenberg, he was the Posek Hador. So, how did he not worry about this? It says the, the Yamshel Shlomo, the Shlomo Luria, how did he not worry about Bittul Torah, right? Um, uh, and he says, it's not up to you, it's not your personal Torah. The whole community needed you. How did he do this? He says, it must be, he thought, if they redeem him, we're afraid that this can happen with other Tamir Chachamim. 
because of the, uh, the, the great money. And then there wouldn't be enough money for the whole community to redeem them. And then Torah will be forgotten from Israel because all the rabbis will be captive by all these evil people and there won't be enough money to redeem all that. He says, that's the only way I can understand it, right? Um, and he says, I, t- I indeed heard that they had plans to, to grab the rush. The rush was actually a Talmud of Rabbi Brittenberg and his students. And, um, and the rush escaped. Okay. So therefore, maybe that's why the Rabbi was said it. Now, I want to tell you one other thing, not, a couple of things here. Um, the, uh, um, when Rabbi Yitzhak Hutner, the Rosh Hashiva of Yeshiva Chaim Berlin, was on a plane from, um, uh, from, I believe it was from Israel, yeah, it was from Israel back to America, and uh, the plane, there were a couple planes, were, I think it was three planes actually, were diverted to Beirut, and they were, uh, they, as a matter of fact, I think they blew up, they took the passengers off one plane, they blew up the plane, but they said that they were going to kill the hostages if, they didn't free, if Israel didn't free certain terrorists. So, um, he was Muflag B'chachma, so Rabbi Yitzhak Hutner was like one of the Gedoli Hador, right? So, there was one very wealthy disciple who had several million dollars, and he approached the State Department and he said that they, uh, he wanted to offer his money uh, to the uh, terrorists to free Rav Yitzhak Hutner. Not everybody else, just to free Rav Yitzhak Hutner. And, and, uh, and the rabbis got together to discuss this. Are they, is he allowed to do that? I don't know if he did it already, if he, if he asked them or not. And, um, and the fact is that we say, Muflag B'chachma, you're allowed to pay any price, right? Um, Okay, so they go back and forth with this, the, the tosis that we talked about, the tosis that said one answer was Muflag B'chachma, the other answer was not that. Um, uh, so the, anyway, here it goes. Vahayu, now we're going to read to the end here. Vahayu min harabanim az, shayu svurim lomar. There are many rabbis who thought that even Rav Hutner, hayu dino kain, ketam b'chacham muflag. Vahashar al-kainan, therefore, yesh lifto, so afil b'yos b'tei lomar, but should redeem it for any price. But then Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, Zechron al-Vracha, stood up and he said, Ein ha-cheshben hazet tzadeh klau. This whole calculation is improper. The kol hach dina depidin shvuyim lesa el shalom. All these laws of redeeming captives only apply during a time of peace. Avu b'shas melchama, during a time of war. E'ef shalom rashem l'chuyavim l'hasim l'lilcham. You can't tell people that you're supposed to stop fighting in order to redeem Captives for money. We're going to be helping the enemy in the middle of a war. Now you're going to give great money to the enemy, and they're going to be able to strengthen their standing in the war. They'll be able to kill more Jews. So therefore, says Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, who himself was a leader of the generation, as you know, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky said, "No, don't do that. This is wartime, and wartime we don't do this at all. Even for tamachacha muflag, we don't pay exceptional prices." So again, just to give you an example of how, um, uh, of how disparate the opinions uh, are about this kind of a thing. There's also another, Vivadya Yosef advanced the following argument. Vivadya Yosef said, wait a minute. There's a there major impact, the policy of not negotiating with terrorists may be appropriate in certain conditions, but if you're talking about a soldier in the Israeli army and you say, okay, 19-year-old boy, put on your armor and go out to battle, and go into Gaza, and I'm, I'm, I'm dramatizing it. Go into Gaza and put your life on the on, on the line, 
And if somebody pops up out of a tunnel and grabs you, guess what? We're not negotiating with terrorists. We're not, we're gonna pay, there's a limit to how much we're gonna pay. We're only gonna, I don't know what it is, whatever Kadei Demeyam is, there's a limit. The morale of the soldier is so affected that uh, he can't even fight. He might not even want to fight. Or he might not put himself out because he doesn't know that the army is really behind him that much. So the no soldier left behind kind of a concept actually changes the whole mindset of a soldier at a time of war. And therefore, said Rabbi Yosef, it's not appropriate to say at a time of war, we won't negotiate with terrorists because that will actually endanger Israeli soldiers. Now, there's also a fascinating interplay. It's getting kind of late. That's why I'm rushing a little bit. There's a fascinating interplay with, between this halacha and a halacha that you would not think in any way is related. And that's the question of organ donations, um, which is a complicated issue in and of itself. But why does organ donations have any relevance to this? Because the question of organ donations is, I'm going to give my kidney, and nobody could say that I'm for sure in the clear that when I give up one of my kidneys, I'm not going to be in a case of... Uh, a, a case of Suffolk because now, but certainly in the earlier days. Nowadays, the procedure has become s- relatively routine. I happen to have a son-in-law who's donated a kidney. I can tell you, it's not routine. Okay, but uh, but he's okay. He's 100% fine, and he had no complications. But it was extremely, uh, you know, it's not it's not a simple matter. Uh, again, matter of fact, I've got a couple people in my family have done that. But the point is that. Um, uh, can you put yourself in a case of suffek pikuach nefesh in order to save somebody who is definitely pikuach nefesh? Somebody needs a kidney. If they don't get a kidney, they'll die. I'm going to put myself at risk, and I'm going to put myself in a condition where I could theoretically have a complication that would cost me my life, but maybe not. Am I allowed to do that? It's a big question in halacha. So Roshlomo Goren and others spoke about the issue of hostages at a time of war, and they said, and, and they said, wait a minute, uh, you're telling me, don't pay an exorbitant price because what you might incentivize terrorists to capture other hostages. Well, right now I have somebody right in front of me whose life is in danger, so I've got pikuach nefesh right in front of me, and we're saying, don't do that because you might incentivize people to put other people in danger. But I got somebody in danger right here, so you know you could see. This kind of a thing is a, a, extremely complicated. When Shalit was redeemed, there was major controversy. Some people were sending, some rabbis were sending Mazel Tov messages to the prime minister. And Shkayach, you did a beautiful job. You followed halacha. Everything's great. And other people were saying, I refuse to give a yashikach because you're endangering other people. You're causing our enemies to have to go. The, the, the Hamas is going to go and have to capture more people to get more people out of jail. And so, you can, and so you can see, depending on how you go, whether you go with Tosis' answer that at a time of war is different, or if you go with the answer that, um, uh, that uh, uh, it's Muflug uh, depending on how you, how you answer those questions, you're going to have major implications in terms of uh, how you think. Yes. Because you're not going to incentivize because they're doing terrible things. Anyway. Don't do it because you're bolstering their finances or whatever. Interesting, that's true. Tosis is talking about this man of Corbin and Bias where everybody was being taken captive anyway. That's a swara of Tosis. If you look at the Rishon, Tosis says everybody's been taken captive anyway. So redeem who you can. But now it was a totally different situation. 
Anyway, so if it's unclear, then you're clear. If it's clear, you're not clear because it's not clear. It's a, that's the whole point. All right, Yashikah.